Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome. Thank you for joining us once again. Uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, yeah, um, we did plan an introduction, but I can't really remember any of it now. Um, l- I was saying to Mark, we've done this for how long? And he still can't remember what we say at the beginning. I know, but it's, <laughs> it's quite early in the morning, isn't it? I've only been awake an hour. It is very early. Um, it's too early <laughs> it's way too early it's a sunday and it's like nine o'clock and we're doing it that's um oh. that's weird isn't it um it's too much okay so uh, bethan's got a really interesting case this week uh they're always interesting of course but this is a little bit different um i recognized uh, what it was about as soon as i saw it so uh before we get on to that we would love to thank our most recent patreon supporters yeah thank you so much everybody there's loads of you again so a huge thank you to Emma Niven, Leon McKenzie, Nikki Holt, Princess Leah, Natasha Higgins, Janie Roberts, who was paid annually. Thank you so much, Janie. Anybody who pays annually gets a discount and we are so, so grateful for your investment in us and in the show. Um, Josie, Georgie Lake, Loanna Koremanen, Ariane, Sophia Cons, uh, who was also paid annually. Thank you so much, Sophia. And also Fatty Fudge Cake, uh, which we absolutely loved uh, the name. Thank you. It made us laugh so much going totally off topic. But when we worked together, I once used my entire lunch break trying to find the perfect chocolate cake for Mark because he was going on and on and on about it. I went to like five or six different cafes. He had very specific rules. Do you remember remember what your rules were? Because I actually remember because they are etched into my brain from using my entire hour. I don't know. I know. Yeah, I'm so grateful, but I can't (laughs) really remember what I just really wanted it so much, but it was, I think I wanted like a proper moist chocolate cake with a kind of, uh, the sort of fudge all over it, maybe. Was yeah, and it right? had to be and I said at it least had to be like a... two layers and it had to have like stuff in the middle. <laughs> yeah, and I probably said it has to be a cake that's like a slice rather than like a square or something like that. Um, so I was absolutely gagging for it, wasn't I? I really, really wanted this cake and I don't know why you actually did this, Bethan, but you said I will go out and get it and you got it. And then what happened? Oh my God, this is the best bit as well. So I managed to find this cake and then <laughs> we... I had it, I brought it in. I was like, Mark, look at this. He was salivating on arrival. He was just like, this is incredible. This is exactly what I wanted. So he went out the back to go get a fork to eat his cake with. And we hid the cake. It was incredible. He actually got a bit upset and stropped a little bit. And it was, it was very funny. And then our colleague put some crumbs around his mouth and pretended he'd eaten it. And Mark (laughs) refused to speak to any of us for like, an hour <laughs> I think it was only I don't know what I was just so desperate for that cake and, and even when you... we gave you the cake you still wouldn't talk to us <laughs> no um I was just like what the fuck I remember that uh yeah I remember Jordan had put crumbs around his face and I was just like I can't I can't fucking believe this um but I got the cake in the end and and lost a few <laughs> Uh, colleagues and friends in in the process (laughs) Um, but I'm so grateful Bethany it was a beautiful cake I'm so grateful but anyway um, thank you so much to anyone who supported us on Patreon because it really does mean the absolute world to us and it's incredible that you support us financially and that just really helps us to keep this show going every week um, and keeps us producing which is which is really really kind so if you would also like to support us on Patreon you can head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast There's multiple tiers that you can choose from. 
um, with all the different levels of how much you you feel able to support us with. Um, and as Mark said, if you do sign up for an annual subscription, you do get a slight discount. I can't remember what the discount is. Do you know, Mark? I think it works out around about fifteen percent, ten percent, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's um, awesome. so. It is. It's worth it. And as Bethan said, there's loads of different tiers that you can sign up to with different um, packages uh, within them. So lots of bonus content. We send exclusive seeing red goodies out to people when they sign up. Uh, there's so much stuff going on over there. We've got blog posts. We've had episodes where we've looked back at seasons and we've talked about the different episodes that we covered and why we chose those cases, what happened afterwards, how we felt about them, how our opinions have changed since we covered them. Um, but there's also your standard bonus episodes as well. Uh, where we feature cases so come and join the 160 or so people that are already over there uh, supporting the show supporting us and ensuring that we are here every single week producing content for you guys and even if you're not able to financially support us over on patreon please do come and join us on the facebook instagram twitter and youtube communities because it's great getting to chat to everybody getting to talk to people who have recommended us on other podcast pages or discussed us um, we always shout out to Paul and to Adam at the True Crime Enthusiast and the UK True Crime Podcast and um, to Bob at Twisted Britain. They're always mentioning us and then we get people come over to our groups as well. So do come and join us and join in the conversation. Well, we've nattered on at them for long enough, I think, Mark. Shall we get started? Yeah, let's go. On the 1st of April 2015, just before Easter, thousands of people working in Kingsway, Holborn were evacuated from their jobs due to a fire. So this area is a really fancy part of London. It's filled with restaurants, jewellers, lawyers' offices, hotels. There's places like the London College of Economics. It is one of the major north-south routes through central London. And interestingly, it is where Elbit Systems, Israel's largest arms company, had its London headquarters. Sir Hiram Maxim had a small factory at 57 Hatton Garden and in 1881 he invented and started to produce the Maxim gun, a prototype machine gun and parts of the surrounding areas have been developed with blocks of luxury apartments. Hatton Garden is considered to be the home of diamonds and jewellery in the UK but to be honest also as the home of diamonds and jewellery in Europe. The largest of this type of business was De Beers, the international family of companies which dominated the international diamond trade and their headquarters were an office and warehouse complex just behind the main Hatton Garden shopping street. When an electrical fire broke out under the pavement at lunchtime that Wednesday, sending thick black smoke billowing into the air, the police declared a major incident. Firefighters were called at about 12.30pm on Wednesday, and as the scale of the fire was realised, 10 fire engines and 70 firefighters were called to the scene. Police officers closed Kingsway at both ends, they advised motorists to avoid the area, and Holborn Underground Station was also closed. People working in the area were evacuated, around 5,000 people in total. Onlookers described crazy scenes and madness as smoke rose so high in the air it could be seen from the Shard skyscraper and photos of flames shooting out of manhole covers were shared on social media. Judges, lawyers and staff at the nearby Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand were among those evacuated and the streets were absolute chaos as those evacuated waited on the street and traffic began to pile up. People struggled to breathe because of the smoke seeping through the drains and local roads were closed off as emergency services and the utility companies worked together. 
London Fire Brigade used the Metropolitan Police helicopter and infrared images to locate where the main hotspots were and used Scotland Yard's explosives robot to go into the tunnel to provide them with information. A huge power cut was then caused by the fire too and the effects of this continued for days with substantial disruption to telecoms infrastructure and lack of power to businesses until it was finally extinguished on Good Friday morning. Eight theatres nearby were forced to cancel 10 performances and businesses were disrupted by this forced closure that was really sudden. Residents in local homes were without power for days too and the road was damaged from the heat underneath. Traffic was disrupted as people used diversions. And you would have thought that this would be enough excitement for one Easter weekend, wouldn't you? But no, Kiefer Kamara arrived at work on April the 7th after a long bank holiday weekend to discover that his employers had been broken into. This wasn't just some small-time business that Kiefer worked for. He worked at Hatton Garden Safety Deposit Limited and they had just been hit by the largest burglary in English legal history. Wow, that is um that is like a setup and a half to this story because I uh, most people will know uh, or will will probably understand where we're heading with this and what the case is, but I didn't know that there was all of that disruption beforehand. Yeah. So theatres closing and buildings evacuated and smoke coming up from from the ground. That's so weird. It's really crazy. Um, I would like to make a really like key point that it actually has nothing to do with today's case. It was pure coincidence, which is very, very weird. You wouldn't wow. expect that to just be a coincidence. You'd expect them to have done this on purpose, but nope. I thought it was to do with them being underground. No. Which, okay. It just wow. happened, so happened that this occurred and it was such a major disruption. And then also what's what will follow will follow. So let's take a quick pause here for a word from our first sponsor today. Kiefer Kamara and his colleague Kelvin Stockwell had locked up the store on Thursday the 2nd at 6pm and had left for their long weekend off. They set the alarm and locked the front door and then once they had gone, the building's concierge, Carlos Cruz, which I thought was such a cool name, Carlos Cruz, he locked the main doors and left via the front door which locked automatically behind him. Kiefer Kamara had worked there for over a decade and when he arrived on the Tuesday he just knew that something was wrong. He told the standard, I saw that the lock of the door was at a funny angle and I immediately knew something was wrong. I looked in through a gap and I just saw wires all over the floor and chaos inside so I immediately called the police. Chaotic scenes greeted the Metropolitan Police officers who arrived at the vault of Hatton Garden Safety Deposit Limited. There were empty boxes strewn all over the floor and an absolute mess throughout. The vault was covered in dust and debris and Detective Chief Inspector Paul Johnson of the Flying Squad, which was heading the investigation into the theft, told reporters that forensic experts found no sign of forced entry on the outside of the building which houses a number of other businesses, and it has a communal entrance, so they hadn't found anything on the outside of the building. Um, He emphatically refused to answer the reporters' questions concerning the boxes, telling them that the investigation was ongoing. He said, Officers are in the process of identifying the owners of the safety deposit boxes, and as we do, we are contacting them to take statements and find out what has been stolen. The papers were full of speculation, though, as you would expect, with claims that famous people, including premiership footballers, were among the victims of the heist. 
I think that's um, so interesting as well, because if you think what what most people would put in a safety deposit box, so it's not going to be like cash because you would just put that in the bank. It's going to be stuff that you want to keep secret. So it could be things like diamonds and jewellery, but there could also be photographs in there, um, recordings of illicit encounters. There could be all sorts of really juicy stuff. Yeah in those safety deposit boxes. So they're probably, when news got out of this, there probably would have been quite a few people that were, one, gutted that their stuff has been robbed, but two, probably a bit worried that it was going to end up in the newspapers as well. Definitely. So just what had happened that weekend? Well, not only was this the largest ever heist successfully carried off in the UK, but the story behind it sounds like a film. The main characters being so unexpected as thieves. In the press, they were nicknamed Mr. Ginger, Mr. Strong, Mr. Montana, The Gent, The Tall Man and The Old Man. And the fact that these were elderly gentlemen really added to the intrigue in the case. And I don't know if you're the same as me, but I remember this so vividly looking in the papers and just thinking, oh, my God, these old boys, these granddads, what the hell? They, they were like old, old age pensioners, literally, weren't they? It was it was almost like these old boys criminal network, their one last big job before they would officially retire on the Costa del Sol. It, it literally was like something out of a movie, it is, wasn't it? And exactly. You, you can't just you can't let their age fool you because these guys were experienced thieves having one last hurrah, and it's just like a film. Before we discuss that weekend, I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of the men known to be involved in the heist. So Brian Reader was known by the gang members as the master and the governor. He was born on the 28th of February 1939, which made him 76 at the time of the robbery. He was the oldest of the gang. He was a career criminal, perhaps best known for his involvement in the notorious Brinks Mat robbery. Is there anyone in London's criminal underworld that wasn't involved in the Brinks Mat robbery? I know. How many people were there? Like 500 people? Fucking hell. So we haven't covered that event, but we referenced it back in our first ever episode. During that raid, gold, bullion and diamonds worth £26 million at the time were taken from a warehouse near Heathrow Airport in what is still Britain's biggest gold robbery. Brian Reader was suspected of laundering the proceeds along with Kenneth Noy. The pair were placed under surveillance and when they found Detective Constable John Fordham spying on them in the grounds of Noy's home in Kent, Noy stabbed the detective 11 times. And Both men were placed on trial for murder but were acquitted after Noy claimed to have been acting in self-defence. Reader was jailed for 14 years for conspiracy to handle stolen goods when gold bars were found. And at the time of the Hatton Garden heist, he ran a used car dealership, which I thought was quite standard, quite a classic thing to do. It it is, but also notorious for money laundering front. On the night of the raid, he actually used somebody else's freedom pass to get his free bus to Hatton Garden. Isn't that adorable? Just an old man gets on the bus with his free bus pass. Well, why not? It's free. Michael Seed, known as Basil, was born on the 9th of August 1960. He was an alarm specialist and he worked fixing televisions, video recorders and computers before moving into the jewellery trade in around the mid-1990s. He gained A-levels in physics, chemistry, maths and geology at a secondary modern school before studying physics and electronics at Nottingham University. At uni, he enjoyed recreational drugs, apparently taking LSD every weekend. But in 1984, he was given a three-year prison sentence for supplying controlled drugs of class A and class B um, because he sold 10 LSD tablets and some cannabis to a friend. 
He was released after serving 21 months, but he said it was around this time he met Brian Reader. Daniel Jones, known as Danny, was born on the 1st of March 1955 and was an experienced criminal with convictions for burglary, attempted robbery and handling stolen goods. His criminal career dated back to 1975 and in 1982 he was convicted of stealing items worth £92,000 from Ratner's Jewellers. He has been described as eccentric and mad. So another one of the guys we'll talk about, Carl Wood, said of him, he would go to bed in his mother's dressing gown with a fez on, which I just thought was wonderful. Is this the guy that had taken all the LSD though? No, or is different, this a different guy. guy. Okay, so I'm thinking maybe he'd also taken some LSD Quite in his potentially. Um, so Daniel Jones also claimed to have fortune-telling powers. He talked to his dog Rocket as though he was human. He was obsessed with the army and keeping fit, and he actually preferred to sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor rather than his bed. During the raid, he wore a really crazy outfit, which was stripy trousers, a high-vis waistcoat, red trainers, and a navy baseball cap. He had been considering how to carry out the raid since August 2012. He'd spent hours researching on the perfect heist online in books, and he was part of this core group that would meet on a Friday night at the Castle Pub in Islington for about three years before they carried out the raid. Can you imagine that? Going to the pub with these old boys every Friday in Islington and just talking about how they're going to plot the perfect raid. Like after, you know, five or six pints, it's just getting more and more outlandish. And also you wouldn't think twice, those old boys in the corner. No, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't give them a second glance. Carl Wood was born on the 27th of February 1957 and has Crohn's disease. He was living on disability and trying to support his family with £320 a fortnight that he received. So apparently this was the reason for him getting involved. He pulled out of the heist on the second night and the others subsequently refused to give him any of the spoils to help clear his debts. No loot was found at his house. Felt a bit sad for him. I think that's fair though. If That's kind of like the criminal code, it is, isn't yeah. it? If you're going to back out, yeah. But I did feel sorry for him because he's like, oh, I'm so, I'm so in debt, I need to do something. John Kenneth Collins, known as Kenny, was born on the 5th of September 1940 and recruited his nephew, William Lincoln, Collins was the gang's lookout man and in covert police recordings described how he sat outside on his own all night. He also drove the van to the safe deposit and formed a number of reconnaissance trips to Hatton Garden. But in a covertly recorded conversation, Danny Jones claims that Collins fell asleep on the job quite often. Another proper old man thing. Um, And that comes up quite a lot. Apparently this Collins guy just falls asleep really easy. (laughs) Terence Perkins, born on the 4th of April 1948, was also known as Terry. This is my favourite of all of the gang members because I really enjoyed his backstory. On his 35th birthday in 1983, he was part of the Security Express depot raid in Shoreditch, East London. So £6 million was stolen, making it the UK's biggest ever cash robbery at the time. He was caught, sentenced to 22 years in prison, but he broke out of Spring Hill Prison in Buckinghamshire in 1995. He was at large for 17 years, was returned to prison in 2012, and then just three years later, when he came out of prison, 32 years after his first birthday raid, he celebrated his 67th birthday during the Hatton Garden raid. Do you reckon that was, like, intentional? I don't think so. I think they chose the weekend because it worked, but it just so happened that his birthday had fallen on the two different raids. Yeah. Oh, actually, it, was be- it wasn't it because it was a bank holiday weekend. Yeah, they, they felt chose like it would it, be the they? quietest. Yeah. So, um, but I just really enjoyed that. Not that he particularly took a cake down with him on the raid and had a candle or anything, but... I wonder if they sort of had a bit of a sing-song or something. I do hope so. Yeah. 
A couple of other people linked to the events were Billy and Hugh. Sir William Lincoln, who I mentioned before, was also known as Billy the Fish. He was born on the 15th of June 1955 and had been given his nickname due to the fact that he'd always go to Billingsgate Fish Market on a Friday morning. He had been convicted several years prior to the heist for beating a man outside of his house with a chair. He had several health problems, including severe osteoarthritis, for which he'd undergone a double hip replacement. So by his own omission, William Lincoln was, in inverted commas, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, He told the court that he never refused anyone anything. And his defence tried to use this to kind of paint a picture of him as being really easily influenced by others. Hugh Doyle, born 28th of February 1967, was a plumbing engineer whose workshop was based close to the pub where the guys would meet. There was no evidence he ever went to Hatton Garden, but his role in this was reportedly to provide an exchange point for the final handover of loot outside his business premises. He said he just gave his friend Collins a key to his office because Collins had asked to borrow a van um, and he'd asked him if he could store some property at his premises. He said he had no idea that the three men that he used to meet in Islington for a drink once a month or so in the early 1990s or early 2000s were the ringleaders of the heist. He kind of said he was nothing to do with any of this. So Superintendent Peter Wilton investigated Terry Perkins. So um, Terry, the guy that I said before, he investigated him for the Security Express robbery in 1983. And he said he was a calm and docile chap who was polite and reserved during questioning. He said Perkins was often seen in a pub dressed in a suit and tie, giving the impression to many that he was actually a serving police officer. That's probably the best cover though, Mm -hmm. isn't it? He was asked by the press why he thought Terry and the others would do something like this again, especially Terry, who had been part of a huge heist before and had been caught. He said it could well be that he just wasn't happy with the way his life was going and he wanted a pension. And this seems like the biggest and best way of doing it. One for the road, as they say. And he reckoned that the gang weighed up the risk and decided it was worth their while. His quote continued, I presume that they worked out what the tariff was for burglary, 10 years, and said to themselves, if we're captured, we'll probably only do about four years at the most. And then with the time that they've got on remand, even less. After four years, you can come out with a couple of million. I think that's a decent pension. I I totally understand where they're coming from. I'm not advocating pulling off a big heist, but I think because of their age, I think... Um, you kind of think that the courts, if they got caught and were sentenced, that the courts might go be a bit lenient with them mm-hmm. anyway in terms of a sentence. So, so yeah, some of them, if say you're in like your 60s, you could serve four or five years, you'll have stashed quite a lot of the money and then, yeah, just retire into Spain and get a nice big villa and exactly. live out your, your retirement in the best way possible. Exactly. And as we always say, the reason these are crimes are because they are crimes. And we're not trying to say, you know, we're not trying to glamorise anything. But with this one, I do find it really hard not to just kind of enjoy it a little bit and be like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Because it is still wrong and they're still doing something that they shouldn't be doing. But I do find it hard not to kind of admire them a little bit for giving it a go. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that everybody that would have had a safety deposit box at Hatton Garden at this particular location would have been a criminal. But I'm telling you, a good proportion of the people that had boxes there would have been criminals and it would have been illegal gains that were being stored there anyway. So it was kind of like 
screw you but I'm not I'm not saying everybody was in that boat because there were legitimate business people Mm -hmm. and individuals who had their their stuff stolen which is appalling it's horrible and there would have been things with a lot of sentimental value which is just cruel but um, I think it's it's not even necessarily glamorizing it it's just it's just funny it's quite comic because of their age and you do almost there is an element of us that wants to applaud them as the anti-hero in this yeah. because they're like, we're just going to, we're going to do it. We're going to pull off one last con, uh, one last robbery, and we're going to go and, and live our best lives in the sun. I spent the whole time writing this, imagining Michael Caine was in the in there with them. Like, it's that sort of look, kind of guy. It's just... It's got vibes of the Italian job, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, it really does. Absolutely. So before we get into the crux of the story in terms of what happened on that fateful weekend, uh, let's uh, hear from our second show sponsor a little bit earlier than we normally would, but we don't want to interrupt the uh, the crux of the story. So um, yeah, let's hear from our second sponsor, which is Stitch Fix. So let's now return to Hatton Garden on Thursday, the 2nd of April, 2015. The security guards have set the alarms as usual and the concierge has locked up the building. It's all quiet and dark, and the gang are about to put into motion a plan that they have been plotting for three years. John Collins, or Kenny, drove up in a white transit van which is seen on street cameras pulling up in an alley alongside the Hatton Garden Safe Deposit building. Out got Daniel Jones and Carl Wood. Brian Reader walked from that bus stop where he'd used his friend's bus pass um, to meet the rest of his crew. He kept his head down, obscuring his face from nearby security cameras. Terence Perkins was also there, and the gang were dressed as maintenance workers. Carl Wood in a high-vis, Daniel Jones in his crazy outfit, Brian Reader got rid of his coat and put on a hard hat, and the men carried walkie-talkies. They had met in an alleyway at around 8.25pm, but they had to wait for a jeweller to be finished at work, so they waited in the van. So the guy that was still working had often worked late, as the gang had realised from their reconnaissance trips, but finally he was finished, and off he went. So Michael Seed, or Basil, had managed to get hold of a key to the front door from one of the elderly tenants. So he headed to the front door and using the key and the correct code, he gained entry into the lobby of the building. He headed down an internal staircase leading to the basement, opened a fire escape door and the others came in. They brought inside numerous large holdalls which contained all the tools for the weekend as well as supplies that they required. And one item required that really did make me chuckle to note was that Perkins had to bring along insulin for a number of days. Just another reminder of the age and the health of these men. Yeah, and that's going to be a lot of physical backbreaking work. Seriously, this is crazy what they're doing. Yeah, so you just think like... They must have been quite fit for their age. or I, Some of them have got health problems, of course, but on the whole, they must have been pretty fit to be able to pull this off. Mm-hmm. They'd also brought out metal joists and wheelie bins as well. So Basil disabled the alarms, and how this has been done has never been conclusively established, although some think perhaps he had a jammer. The telephone line cable coming out of the alarm box was cut, the GPS area was broken, and the wires in the electrical box powering the outer iron gate were cut, allowing it to be pulled open. They turned off their mobile phones, well, all of them except Reader who didn't have a phone, because again, he's an old man, and Collins headed out to his lookout point across the road at number 25. And just a quick aside, they'd disabled quite a lot of CCTV or smashed CCTV cameras or kind of covered a lot of them. Um, But there was one that they hadn't noticed and they were spotted on that, but their faces were never seen. And that's where those nicknames, Mr. Ginger 
um, Mr. Montana, that sort of thing, because um, I think it was Brian Reader, who was Mr. Ginger, had a wig on under his hat and it was ginger hair. Mr. Montana was nicknamed because he had a T-shirt that said something about Montana on. So the press really tried to use whatever they could but they still couldn't see their faces, which was so amazing. So they were quite lucky, really. The, the one camera they didn't spot didn't show off too much, actually, yeah. The gang called the lift to the second floor and then they disabled it, leaving an out-of-order sign stuck on the outside. And they'd already learned that the lift wouldn't go to the basement. It was designed this way because years previously, a man with a shotgun had tried to get down there to rob the vault. So the next part of the plan is such a shock considering their ages. They had to lower all their tools down, lower the tools and bags, and then they also had to climb 12 feet down the lift shaft. Wow. I know. I mean, that you wouldn't want to, no one would want to do something like that at the best of times. But at that age, um, yeah, in the pitch black, that's just quite scary, isn't it? And this whole thing took place over a number of days, number and number of hours. And I kind of just think to myself, do you know what? No wonder, because just climbing down that one at a time, you're going to get to the end all huffing and puffing. Like, I would be huffing and puffing at the end, and I'm not 76. Yeah, and just think of the amount of, like, food and water and stuff mm-hmm. that I've had to have taken for a weekend down there. Mm-hmm. Next, they had to get through some metal gates that were set up with alarm systems too. They methodically worked to disable these, and they made it to the CCTV security office, where guards would normally monitor the cameras, Basil then removed the CCTV hard drive and smashed all of the cameras. And finally, they were outside the vault. Basil had already trained himself in how to bypass the intruder alarm, and now they were at the final part of the break-in plan. According to the police, the thieves decided to bypass the vault door, and instead they used a heavy-duty Hilti DD350 drill to bore holes into the reinforced concrete wall. This wall was two metres thick, and the plan was to drill three holes... Um, but alongside each other, which would then create a gap big enough for several of the gang members, not all of them, but several of them would be able to wriggle through. So Jones was the main person to use the drill, along with Basil, and the drill was so heavy duty that the vibrations were felt in nearby buildings. But the gang had some really good fortune here. Residents had been warned with letters that drilling was going to be happening for the Crossrail project, so nobody batted an eyelid. See that? Uh, see that's really fortuitous. But can really they could have even planned something like that? Not that they had to, but if you were carrying out a robbery like that, and there was going to be lots of vibrations felt within the community from the drilling that you're doing, you could easily just come up with some bullshit letter to send mm-hmm. out to the residents, couldn't you? To say, don't be alarmed. So they didn't have to do it in, in this case, but they could have no. could have just done that. And when I first read about that Crossrail letter, I was like, oh, they obviously sent out a fake letter. Yeah. And then the more I read, I was like, oh no, it, it was just good fortune. Yeah. I suppose they had to have quite a lot of luck in order for for them to pretty much initially get away with this. Yeah. I can't believe that's safe, though. The walls are two metres thick. I know. And do you remember the pictures of the wall with the gap with the investigator climbing through? I sort of, I can picture it in my head, so I've definitely seen them. Yeah. I can't remember it uh, really well. I'll go and have a look after this. Definitely do. I I I remember we discussed it at work and we were talking about, like, how terrifying it must have been to start squeezing through and thinking, imagine if I get stuck right now. Oh, my God, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd be absolutely screwed. And I love how they're just like, oh, we, we're not even going to bother with the safe door. That's too much like hard work. So we're just going to drill a, a two metre hole through the wall. Yeah. Now, what I will say with this drill is because it's such a heavy duty drill that's boring these massive holes, it was really, really hard to use. So they used to have to keep, well, not used to, they had to keep stopping and putting it down and having a rest. I think any young fit man would have had to have done anyway, but these old, old men are then working for maybe half an hour, 45 minutes of just non-stop drilling and vibrations and they're having to stop and take a break and then try and continue those two metres of concrete that they're drilling through. It must have been absolutely back-breaking work. It would have. I, I can't. I cannot imagine what that drill would look like because you see uh, road workers, don't you, mm-hmm. drilling, drilling into the ground? But that they're drilling through tarmac, which is it's probably a bit more brittle, so it's easier to drill through. But imagine drilling horizontally through uh, six, seven feet of solid concrete. I just I cannot imagine what that would have looked like and how how big that drill must be and and yeah the actual like you say the vibrations from it I'm not surprised that they were felt within the locality. Yeah. Now at 12:21 a.m. police at Scotland Yard were informed that an alarm had been triggered but they didn't respond to it. So a member of the family which owned the company who also received the call that the intruder alarm had gone off um was told that police were heading to the scene so that gave him peace of mind. He called his trusted security guard, so Kamara um, wasn't able to go because there were no trains running. So he managed to get hold of Stockwell, who did go along to the building. He wasn't super worried because the sensitive alarm had previously been triggered by an insect. When Stockwell reported back to him about an hour later that the building's exterior was secure, they didn't worry any further and he didn't ask Stockwell to go in. If he'd have gone in, he potentially might have come across this all happening. But instead, he just checked the outside, it looked fine, and he went home. Yeah, because I think if he'd gone in, he even if it kind of looked quite normal, he would have felt or at least heard he might the vibration below yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. The gang, oblivious to what was going on above them, continued to drill. They needed breaks often, and Perkins injected his insulin as required. But after hours and hours of drilling, the plan began to go wrong. No, see now, this is so, this is so that... I, they are like anti-heroes in my head because I'm like, no, I don't I want it to go wrong. And it's so bad, isn't it? Because they're criminals. We shouldn't be on absolutely. their side, but we absolutely, absolutely. are. Yeah, it's awful. They had finished the holes, but they couldn't see through. There was a metal cabinet on the other side. It was bolted to the ceiling and the floor and they couldn't knock it over, not even with their hydraulic ram. Bloody hell. They lugged all of their tools back up through that lift shaft they had to climb back up and they left the gang left that friday empty-handed and can you imagine the disappointment yeah and there we go mark that's the end of the case no finished. <laughs> no it's not <laughs> i know obviously not but I know it could it's well not. have been the end it should be they planned to head back if possible but naturally they were a bit worried that they had been caught or someone would raise the alarm So they went home and basically they went home to go rest up and to have a sleep and just calm down and chill a little bit. When no news broke of their raid, they decided to try again and headed back for round two. They had a day to rest up and regroup and they had to head to a couple of stores. There were bits of the pump that they were using and um, the drill that needed replacing and they'd had to go to a couple of different stores to get things. It was all a bit of a 
Christ, can we even continue with these broken parts? But they managed to sort it. At just gone 10pm on the Saturday, Basil, Danny, Perkins and Collins headed back to Hatton Garden to continue the heist. So Collins took up his place as lookout and getaway driver. The other three headed inside. Brian Reader and Carl Wood decided not to return. See, now I do, I kind of understand their reasoning behind that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you would just be so deflated and there's no guarantee that the same is the same thing's not going to happen again. Or it's almost like you got away with it the first time, even though you didn't get the loot. Would you get away with it the second time? Because this is essentially yeah. now a second robbery or attempted robbery. And also, what if the police are in that vault waiting for you to come back? Yeah, because they could have put media blackout on this. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. Um the fact that Brian Reader didn't go back really pissed them off because he was the one that was almost like the ringleader. He was classed as the master. Um, his almost like betrayal was really, really upsetting for the other guys. Well, you, you do need somebody that leads that whole team of people. And once a leader abandons, it's you would almost feel like, oh, what's the point? So that again, that would have deflated them more, yeah. I would say. And I mean, they did get annoyed and they felt let down and deserted. But I guess they were also a little bit excited about this prospect of sharing their loot with two less people. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And also, if they managed to pull it off of then not necessarily going to Brian and Carl and saying, ha ha, but Brian and Carl would have found out that it's been pulled off successfully. And they would have... You'd you weren't part of it, You would, yeah. And if you had gone back and successfully got all that loot, uh, you would be really smug because you'd be like, well, screw you. We didn't need you in the end and we did it. And how gutted are you? Mm -hmm. So they had left a door slightly ajar for them to return but a staff member had noticed this and had closed it luckily for the thieves this person hadn't actually investigated any further they'd just gone oh that shouldn't be open and shut it standard i know so basil headed in through the front let them all in heading back to the vault armed with their new tools the gang set about knocking down this metal cabinet that had caused them so many issues before and this wasn't an easy task either they were using this ram Um, I think it was the hydraulic ram that they needed to replace the pump on because it had got so overheated. Um, I can't remember if it was the drill bit that they'd used before or whether it was this pump, but they had to kind of keep pouring water on it to make sure it didn't overheat. God, because when Um, you said pump before, I was just thinking of something like that, I don't know, that would pump out. I don't know, like water or waste materials. It was like a hydraulic ram. Yeah. Um, So I can't remember which bit that was on the water. It might have been more the tip of the drill, but either way. This, even just using the hydraulic ram, was not easy work. No. But finally, they were in. They toppled that metal cabinet and they slipped through the hole and set to work prying open the lockers and ransacking the boxes. The contents were then emptied into large plastic wheelie bins. As this was going on, Terry Perkins had a diabetic episode and he collapsed. But thankfully for him, he had his medication on hand and so he just went and sat in the corner and just calmed himself down a bit. Um. So in the vault, there were 999 boxes and the usual method of opening the boxes was that the person who owned the box and then a staff member would each have a key. So they'd each use their key simultaneously and that would open the box. So there's a real element of security there. Obviously, the gang didn't have any keys, so they just had to use brute force. So by about 6.30 a.m., so they've been going at it since about 10 o'clock the night before, They had raided 72 or 73 of the boxes. They then decided to clear out. 
so there's 999 boxes there and they'd managed to get 72 or 73 of them how many of those boxes were full nobody knows what they had in them nobody knows so the estimates of how much these guys got away with vary between 14 million and 200 million god i mean that is like just immense isn't it yeah and also can you imagine um throughout the that night and the early hours of that morning just opening those boxes or using brute force to get them open but the amount of weird and wonderful things that would have been in those mm-hmm. boxes and i can just imagine i can literally picture them all in this vault um smashing these boxes open and and sort of showing each other the loot that they mm-hmm. found in the boxes because like, there's a load of diamonds yeah or... there would have just been such random stuff in there yeah it's incredible. And the fact that they had to use wheelie bins as well. Bloody hell, um, yeah. Shows just how much stuff they must have gotten hold of. Because it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen the film, but have you seen the film The Bank Job with Jason Statham in it? I don't think I have. It's a bit like this. It's an amazing film and it's kind of alluded to. They do exactly the same thing in that film. And it's alluded to in that film that Princess Margaret had a safety deposit box in in this bank and that they got it and that there were compromising photographs of her in her box, of her basically engaging in threesomes in in Mustique. Love it. So... Before the gang left, they scrubbed every inch of the vault with bleach and this actually ensured that Scotland Yard didn't find any DNA evidence, so they were really clever with that. Nice work. Yeah. Collins picked them up at the back with their wheelie bins full of loot and they sped off. By now, it was gone 6am on the Sunday morning. The gang left those loot-filled wheelie bins outside Kenny's house, which freaked me out, but they'd made sure that there wasn't going to be any rubbish collections. Collins dropped them all home and they had another chance to rest. You just want to go to bed after all You would, yeah, absolutely. So um, then they finally kind of got back together and they divided up all the valuables. They took their share of the hall home and it was up to them then to hide or deal with it as they wished. And so here we are back where we began today's case. So Kiefer Kamara and Kelvin Stockwell arrived at work to discover this absolute devastation Um, The police said in a statement to the press, the scene is chaotic. The vault is covered in dust and debris. The floor is strewn with discarded safety deposit boxes and numerous power tools, including an angle grinder, concrete drills and crowbars. (laughs) God, that is just heavy duty, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Officers are in the process of identifying the owners of the safety deposit boxes. And as we do, we are contacting them to take statements and find out what has been stolen. This is a slow and ongoing process. A forensic examination of the scene for evidence is ongoing. This is a painstaking process, but is essential to ensure officers can gather as much evidence and opportunities to identify the thieves. And the police also said to the press that this is a slow and painstaking process involving forensic examination, photographing the scene and recovering exhibits in meticulous detail in order to preserve the evidence. Officers anticipate this process to take approximately two days and officers are working closely with Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Limited to establish the identities of those affected. Police will be contacting victims directly as and when they are identified. So what I kind of got from all of the press at the time was the police were like, can you just leave us alone and let us do our job, please? This is hard enough as it is. And the press were there going, but was it this footballer? Was it this celebrity? Was it this royal family member? And the police were just getting more and more annoyed because it was so difficult. And quite often people whose boxes had been opened wouldn't tell the police what was in there, potentially because like you alluded to before, 
there was something illegal or it was proceeds of crime or whatever. So even then the police were coming up against victims of the crime who wouldn't talk to them. Yeah, which I understand. And there's a really interesting story that I would love to tell, but I can't tell um, here anyway uh, about something uh, that happened <laughs> okay, somewhere. Okay, stop talking, stop talking. I'll stop. Yeah, I'll get into trouble. trouble. <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago. Um, but but yeah, I do completely understand that there would be an element of, of people not wanting to cooperate with the police if they owned a box or if they had a box full of, of um, valuables there. The police then had to work to identify the thieves. So over the next few years, they were able to make some arrests and convictions. And £3,635,204 worth of recovered jewellery was returned to victims following conviction. The remainder, which could not be accurately or safely identified, was sold at auction. The stolen goods have yet to be fully recovered. Many of the business owners, some of whom have were not able to afford insurance and had relied on those safe deposit boxes, had their livelihoods devastated. A diamond dealer called Neil Dutson, who buys stones for private clients, said to The Independent that the chances of finding all the gemstones and luxury goods that were stolen would be nearly impossible. He explained to the press, once diamonds have been recut and polished, there is no geological map. So he kind of expected at the time that the thieves would wait a few months before trying to sell on the jewels. And the Hatton Garden Safety Deposit Company went into liquidation later on in 2015. So as we were saying at the beginning, whilst this is not actually a joke at all and and it's not funny, it is easy to kind of go, well, it's entertaining, that sort of thing. Actually, a lot of businesses then went under, including the one that was robbed. Yeah, I remember seeing independent jewellers being interviewed on the news at this time and they were just understandably devastated because a lot of the jewellers in Hatton Garden would use the safety deposit company there to put all of their jewels, particularly over a weekend like that. You're not going to leave them in your jewellery shop, are you? So their businesses were absolutely devastated. So as much as we've said, yes, some of the uh, safety deposit box owners would have been criminals, certainly not all of them would have been. And whilst we can joke about the the comic elements of this because of the age of of the um, robbers, etc., it it really was devastating for a lot of people in that that locality. And and, um, I I take that really seriously. It's really sad. I think I remember one jeweller actually crying on the news when he was interviewed. So Wow, I don't... I don't doubt that they would. Yeah, yeah. It, wow. it did have a devastating impact. And also a lot of the jewellers in Hatton Garden would, it would have been second, third generation in their families of of um, uh, being in that business and running that shop. So there would have been a lot of uh, pride and sentiment attached to their businesses. It wasn't just about making money and the loss of their livelihoods. So lecture over, I've done my PSA, my Bethan <laughs> special public service announcement. But um, but yeah, it was it was devastating for them in the six weeks following the heist the police worked really hard to identify the men from that small bit of cctv footage that they had available to them and as investigations continued police placed electronic bugs in two of the men's cars where they picked up their boasts about the raid and their heated discussions about disposing of the loot so they must have had suspicions of who they were looking for um they quite quickly circled in on the guys but i I think that's quite common because 
those men would have been on the police's radar anyway. So they would have a list of potential suspects and they would know people that have used those kind of drills and um, the pump thing. What, what's it called? Like hydraulic um, ram. ram. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So there's only certain people that would have had access to that equipment and would have been able to use it. So they would have they would have known. I can't remember who it was that went to buy the new drill bit or the new pump or something, but obviously you're then caught on CCTV buying that yeah. as well. So there was there was plenty of opportunity from the police. But I did think that within six weeks, I thought that was very quick. It kind is, of yeah, that's turnaround, good work. Really, yeah. During their meetups at the Castle Pub, um, the police used hidden cameras and lip readers to kind of spy on the men as they argued about how to split the proceeds and launder the jewels. Oh, that's amazing. And I know. Lip readers. It's like something out of MI6. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's really, even this bit's kind of like a film. Yeah. And finally, when the men met at an address in Enfield to handle the stolen items, the police made their move. Reader had been wearing a distinctive scarf at the time of the raid, and this was found at his house, as well as other incriminating evidence. Um, Loot from the raid was found in each member's house. So the police, when they really swooped in on them, they they knew they had their men. So four men pleaded guilty. Brian Reader, John Kenny Collins, Daniel Jones and Terry Perkins. And they were all convicted of conspiracy to commit burglary, receiving prison terms of around seven years each. Once in custody, Danny Jones offered to show the police where he'd stashed his share of the loot. So he was trying to get himself a bit of a lesser sentence. But he wasn't actually coming clean properly. So he led the police to a stash he had... Um, under a memorial stone at a cemetery Um, but it was only like his small hall and the police actually knew about his larger hall but he denied all knowledge of that so he kind of screwed himself over there because he was trying to get himself a lighter sentence by saying oh I'll give you some information but the police actually had more than he was giving them anyway. I was going to say I could have I could have worked that out I could I would have been if he'd saying this is where I've stashed it I'd be like okay yeah and where's the rest of it then? Yeah. On the 9th of March 2016 at Woolwich Crown Court, three members of the gang, so John, Kenny Collins, Daniel Jones and Terry Perkins, were found guilty of conspiracy to commit burglary and they were each given a seven-year prison term. After a trial, three further men were convicted, so Carl Wood, Billy the Fish, Lincoln. um, They were found guilty of conspiracy to commit burglary and conspiracy to conceal, convert or transfer criminal property. They were jailed for Carl Wood six years and Billy the Fish seven years. And at this trial as well, Hugh Doyle was found guilty of concealing, converting and transferring criminal property. He was given a 21-month suspended sentence. Brian Reader was sentenced to six years and three months in jail on the 21st of March 2016. And the judge, Christopher Kinch, said, I am satisfied that you were rightly described as one of the ringleaders and involved in regular meetings. It took ages for Basil to be identified, so he was just known in the press as Basil for ages, and I can't really work out why he was called Basil. I don't know if it was just a nickname that he already had, or that the police gave him, or that the press gave him. But he um, was finally arrested on the 28th of March 2018. So Michael Seed was arrested in his home in Islington, London, after his home was searched, He continues to deny his involvement in the burglary and any knowledge of the proceeds of the burglary, um, except for the jewellery valued at £143,000 that was found in his flat. He said that he worked in the jewellery business, but no evidence to support this was found. Um, So he was kind of trying to say to the police, well, I work in the jewellery business and this is just some stuff that people have given me to look after or to sell on or to deal with. 
Um, but no, he was charged with conspiracy to burgle and conspiracy to conceal or disguise criminal property. And in March 2019, Basil was found guilty of conspiracy to burgle and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So he was the final gang member to evade capture. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in the press now about the confiscation orders that have been put against the guys. So um, in October 2020, so not long ago at all from this episode coming out, at Woolwich Crown Court, Michael Seed was issued with a confiscation order, um, which he has to pay within three months, or he could face another seven years in prison, which I found really, really interesting. So um, Adrian Foster, the chief Crown Prosecutor of the CPS Proceeds of Crime, said, despite Mr Seed's protestations of innocence, the CPS was able to prove that he was the masked man, and that he and his conspirators took millions of pounds worth of precious stones, gold and jewellery. He has now been ordered to pay almost six million. If he fails to pay the money in time, he will face up to seven years in prison. Where we can take the money from people who have profited from crime, we do. So I thought that was really interesting. Collins was ordered to pay 7.6 million. Um, He was told that non-payment would lead to more jail time. Um, So they did try and get as much back from like the Proceeds of Crime Act as possible. I think I find it interesting though, because ultimately the police would not have known the value of of the jewellery that was stolen and what these guys would have got for it when they sold it at auction on the open market. So it could be that, for example, Collins was ordered to pay £7.6 million back. It could have been that his share of the loot uh, and once he'd sold it was like £20 So he might be like, fine, here's £7.6, piss off. Exactly. He gets out of prison and he's still got like £12 quid left. Or it could go the other way, though, and your share only came to four. Yeah. But that's very unlikely. Yeah. So Reader and Collins have already been released. Um, but Perkins passed away in prison in 2018 at the age of 69, which I found quite sad, really. I, I was just going to say that's quite sad, isn't it? Because that's no yeah. age, really. And um, I think when you're in prison, it, it is difficult. it's like a hard way of life. So if you're a bit older, if you've got any underlying health conditions, it's going to speed up your demise, isn't it? Yeah. Um. So they're trying to kind of recover stuff from his estate oh god i'd be like the i do get that but i'd be like oh fuck off he's dead yeah so i wanted to end the episode on a little quote from Kiefer kamara which i felt like kind of summed it all up for me so he said to the press when i found out they had drilled into the vault and got away with all that stuff i was amazed i never thought it would happen we had loads of security it was a mission impossible it so was, wasn't it? It's like the old, it's like the films, but it's like the old TV series from the 60s, Mission Impossible. Um, it really was an audacious heist and, and they actually, really, they pulled it off. They did. They did get caught afterwards, but they really did pull it off at the time, which yeah. I was amazed by. Yeah, absolutely. Given their age and um, and some of them having Ill health, health problems. And, yeah. yeah. And and the fact that they kind of screwed it up really on the first night and then ended up thinking, no, we've come this far, let's go back and give it another go. Yeah, and I know this is a case we've talked about and wanted to cover loads. And then when I started researching it, I was like, I'm so glad I'm researching this because there's so many little bits that I didn't know about and it's really, really incredible to hear about. We've not done a good robbery for a long time. Oh, we haven't. We haven't done a heist in ages. I think I, we did. We did a couple sort of early on. So I did um, the Millennium Dome. 
heist, which was similar to this. It was a diamond that was stolen or attempted to be stolen. And I did the Securitas deposit place as well. Yes, and I did another security one. Or no, that was that was your one, wasn't it? I'm sure. Well, I can't remember. I know I definitely did one about Securitas when they when the like person's little boy where they like stopped the guy at the side of the road pretending to be police and did, it was just Did they put did they modify a van or a truck and put yeah. some ram thing on it? Yeah, I remember it. That was yours, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. We as used well. to do so many more heists. We need to cover some more heists, I we think. We do because yeah. it is intriguing. Absolutely. Yeah, I loved that. I um again I knew of it, of course. Any anybody in in England would know of it, I think, but um, I I didn't really know all of the intricate details, so it's um, really interesting, and it's really made me want to watch the movie because I think there's a film. I don't know if that was much mm-hmm. good, but there was also an ITV drama, wasn't there? Oh yeah, we should do that. Amazing. Well, there we go. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us this week again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Yeah, thank you for listening once again. Don't forget to check out the show sponsors. We'll put details in the show notes. And also, if you would like to, if you're able to support the show and us through Patreon, uh, we would be so, so grateful of your support there. So again, we'll put a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. We've got about a month and a half left of the merchandise store as well. So that will be running until the end of 2020. So if you wanted to get your hands on T-shirts, bags, glasses, any fun merchandise that's got our logos and our quotes and stuff on head to the facebook group and have a look at that and what i will say with the glasses they are really good quality because i've got a seam red glass that bethan got for me and i've had it for like i reckon i've had that a year and a half and it always washes up real nice and always looks amazing and uh it's one that i've still managed not to smash so touch wood touch wood when you touch say wood, stuff like I will, that but it's it's always my go-to uh glass when i'm having uh i was yeah. gonna say when i'm having a glass of wine that never happens it's always a bottle um <laughs> but yeah that's my go-to glass so yeah if you too want an exclusive seeing red wine glass then yeah as bethan said details on on our facebook group lovely well we'll be back with you next week yeah we'll see you then guys take care bye bye